Good day, friends. This is Reiko Zek. Thanks for joining me. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. We are reading the One Year Bible. There's a One Year Bible reading plan, and we are in day number 29. Today we're going to read Exodus 8 and 9 and Matthew 19. And then I want to share one thing about Psalm 24, about praying the Psalms in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's jump right in. The first question I want to ask you is, are miracles even possible? Could we read these plagues, this account of the plagues in the book of Exodus in a, let's just kind of naturally figure out how this could have happened apart from God, just science, biology, weather, all these things. Could it have been? Some people think so. Perhaps there was some bacteria that turned the water of the Nile into what looked like blood. There was a blossom of the orange or red bacteria. It looked like blood. It was just a perfect timing for Moses to say, this is Yahweh. And then because of this bacteria in the water, all the frogs in Egypt jumped out of the Nile and they were everywhere. You know, so that's the second plague, the frogs. And then these frogs died and some uh, yeah, some bugs reproduced in their corpses. And so there's gnats everywhere. You know, we could go on and on. We could say, yes, God could have used natural phenomenon. But we'll see, I think, four of these, four or five of these plagues, they're called signs. They are not just natural phenomenon. However, if we think that the universe is a closed box, that there is nothing outside of what we can observe, there is no spirit world, there is no unseen reality, then, yeah, then we may have to come up with natural explanations for this myth that we read in Exodus. However, if we if we just back up and say, look, I have a mind. I have a mind and I I know there's a greater purpose in life and therefore I can believe in something outside of this closed system. In fact, it's an open system. There is a spirit world world outside of it. There is something that has created me. And if once you make that leap or go go towards it, then then you can begin to believe in miracles. And so we do. We believe that the Lord is creator of heaven and earth, and he could have done this using natural phenomena or completely bypassing natural phenomena. I think he's Lord of the cosmos, and so he could do it. One interesting thing I notice is that there these plagues are in three sets of three until we get to the ultimate one, which is the tenth plague. And they take place at the Nile, and then at the palace, and then the third one in each set, there is no warning. So the first set of three... The Nile turns to blood. That takes place, of course, the Nile. The frogs, that takes place. The announcement of it takes place at at the palace. And the gnats, there's no warning. Same thing with the next set. The flies takes place at the Nile. The livestock, there's a warning in the palace. And then the third one, the boils, there is no warning. And then same thing with the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. That pattern uh, is repeated. The Lord, even though he's bringing this great destruction, these plagues on, on Israel, he has mercy. He gives warning. He gives opportunity. He slowly ramps it up so that Pharaoh would let God's people go. I want to focus on one more passage here before we flip over to Matthew. This is during the seventh plague, the plague of hail. Right before it, the Lord, the God of Israel, speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. And this is what he says. He tells him why he's doing this. For this purpose, this is verse 16, But for this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. Well, why? To show you my power 
so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord has a purpose for this. He wants to show his power and to show Pharaoh that he is not the all-powerful God he thinks he is. And I think even though we're not Pharaoh, we often think of ourselves as being the all-powerful God. The Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9. And in that those chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, they kind of go together as a unit. And when it comes to the end, Paul summarizes. And in Romans 9, 17, Paul quotes this. And then Paul says, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so Paul is bringing us to our knees and saying, Oh God, unless you unharden me, I will be lost like Pharaoh. And we flip over in Romans 11, and you can read all this, and it's, it all ties together. In Romans 11, verse 32, it says this, For God has consigned or allowed all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. It is only when we think that we can control our own hearts, when we can control our own destiny, that we can come to God whenever we feel like it. As we see with these half-hearted pleas by Pharaoh, when we manipulate God and are in control, then we are putting ourselves not in a place of mercy. But if we acknowledge that we have been let go in ourselves, as it says here, consigned all to disobedience, then we come to a place where we can receive mercy. That's hard to hear. That's hard to take in our day and age. But that's what Paul summarizes this story in Exodus about. So hope that's not confusing. We're going to keep on thinking about this as we go. I just want to quote one thing from Pharaoh. And this is, we could use any of these plagues and Pharaoh's responses, but one at the end of the seventh plague, the plague of hail, chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go, and you shall stay no longer. It seems like Pharaoh is, wow, he's turned the corner. He's turned back to God. But you can still see he's still justifying himself. He says, this time I have sinned. It's almost like he's saying all the other times I was fine. I was in the right. This time I maybe I went too far and not letting you go at the right time and, and so on. He's, he's, he does what we do. He's justifying himself. He's saying he was right. Even here when he's saying I'm wrong. Wow. So we can see by this that we need God's mercy. Well, let's flip over to Matthew. That's a perfect segue. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 says this, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Remember as we read through Genesis, those times when a patriarch would bless the, the children, especially as you know they were about to die and, and pass on a blessing to them? It was almost prophetic. I don't understand all of it, except that hands were laid on them to confer blessing, to to show God's grace and maybe even bring God's grace or God's favor. I don't understand it all, but that's what Jesus does here. He lays his hands on these little children and he prays for them. Wow, isn't that, isn't that so cool? That's the heart of Jesus. Well, the disciples don't really like it. These snot-nosed little kids are in the way, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, And don't hinder them, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. These powerless ones, these little ones. How many times in this gospel have we heard Jesus show the way of the kingdom is the way of children? That doesn't mean childish, as you've, I'm sure you've heard. It means childlike, full of faith. 
receiving, not giving anything, not making excuses, just being in need. Well, Jesus does lay his hands on them and they go away, blessed by him. What a contrast to the next story. There's another guy that comes up. He's not at all like a child in faith. A man came up and says to him, Teacher, Rabbi, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Wrong question, dude. He doesn't know the gospel yet. He doesn't know the way of God. He has not really read the Torah in the right way. He thinks that there is a good deed that he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus Jesus knows that he's, he's not there. And so he asks him a question. Why do you ask me about what is good? He wants to turn his attention to the one, capital O-N-E, the one who is good. Jesus says, there's only one who is good. Is this man talking to the one who is good? Yeah, he on earth is talking to the one man who is good, who has done good, who always has done good, who has never done wrong. But more than that, he is talking to, he's talking to the one that the Magi's came to worship, that the disciples come to see as the Son of God, worthy of worship, the one on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory is seen. The one that Moses taught God's people to pray back in De- Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. This is the one that you are to pray to. This is the one who is good. He doesn't know it at all. And so Jesus continues and says to him, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now this has been misinterpreted and People read this and say, all right, I've got to be even better than this man, even better than this rich man. I'm going to keep the commandments. Is Jesus really saying you have to keep the commandments to live? Yes, you do. Here's the problem. You haven't. And this man doesn't get it. He thinks he has. So the man asked Jesus, well, which ones do I need to keep? I can play this game. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you, not, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the young man, he thinks he's all right. He says, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Interesting in uh, Orthodox Jewish thinking, a sin is a sin if it is committed outwardly. In other words, when Jesus said, if you've looked on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart, they, you know, guys like Ben Shapiro, these Orthodox theologians, they will completely disagree with you. They will say, no, you have not, unless you have slept with another woman. You have not committed adultery. You have not committed murder just by hating someone in your heart. If you have kept the letter of the law, you have kept the law. And that's what this guy thinks. Interesting, though, in the Ten Commandments, the way we reckon it, number nine and number ten, it says, you shall not covet. How can you do that externally? That is a heart commandment. That is, that is the commandment that gets after our hearts, just as do commandments 1, 2, and 3. You shall have no other gods. Well, anyway, this man thinks that he's kept them. He says, what do I still lack? He has no idea. So Jesus will press him harder than he's been pressed before. He'll push him to the law. Because this man is not ready to hear the good news. He needs to, to realize that he falls short. He is not poor in spirit. He is not a little child. He is not the poor, as Jesus says in in Matthew 11, uh, 25, and so on, those that it has been revealed to, because he has pride in his heart. Maybe that thing, like in Pharaoh, that so easily infects us all. 
Anyway, Jesus pushes him and says, if you would be perfect or complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It seems most likely that this man did covet his own house and this was an idol to him, so he had to get rid of it. Does that mean that all of us, to be complete, need to get rid of all the things that we'd own and give to the poor? Well, not a bad idea. It won't stop you. But, but you can be rich and be a disciple of Jesus. How do I know? Well, because Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, and he was rich. We read about him as he buries Jesus, chapter 27. Also, Zacchaeus, he was very rich. And, and as he came to faith or came back to faith, he was generous with his goods. Lydia, Lydia was a rich disciple, Acts chapter 16. She was a seller of purple goods. She was basically a BMW a car dealer. She, she had expensive goods. She also had a household that she could invite the whole church in Philippi to come and worship in. Uh, Philemon, he has a book named after him. A church met in his house. Many other Christians in the New Testament are rich and they were generous, which is what God gives us goods for, for the purpose of blessing others. Not all of us can handle those goods. And so not all of us, as Jesus will continue to say, ought to be rich. It comes with much difficulty. In First Timothy, in First Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells his disciple, Timothy, as pastor, how to teach the rich. He doesn't say for them to get rid of everything, but he says this, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So those words complement what Jesus says here to this rich young ruler. Unfortunately, he goes away sorrowful because he has great possessions and they are to him, his God. As Charles Wesley said, make a lot of money so that you can give away a lot of money. It's okay to be blessed and God blesses so many people through our rich brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God for their faithfulness, their richness in good works. The last thing we'll say here, Jesus talks about the difficulty, or I should say the impossibility of being saved, if it is by works. The apostles, Peter says, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we often take this and say, well, God can do miracles, and we see that. He can. God can heal me. Yes, he can. But Jesus here is talking about salvation. If you say, yeah, I gave my heart to Jesus, and now I'm following Jesus. That's why I'm saved. Guess what? That's not what Jesus says. He says it's impossible. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. Peter then, I like how he's like, okay, with, with God, this is possible. Okay, well, but bring it home. That's a nice general principle. But Peter says, well, what about us, the one standing right in front of you? Will we be saved? And Jesus says, yeah, you are my disciples. In fact, I promise you, when the new world comes, when I bring the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think that's a beautiful promise. Don't understand all of it. 
Other parts of the New Testament talk about the apostles reigning with Christ, but not just the apostles. We all shall be kings and queens, princes and princesses. We shall reign with Christ. Ponder on that a while. One last thing I just want to point out in Psalm 24, and uh, ask me, I'll, I'll say more about this later. I would encourage you, as you read the Psalms, and you see the word LORD in capital letters, who is the Lord? Yes, we've been reading it's Yahweh, that's his name. But who is Yahweh? We see in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, that that Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus, we could all say, is Jehovah. He is the Lord Jesus. So we could pray this, the earth is Jesus Christ and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of Jesus Christ? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from Jesus Christ and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Jesus Christ, strong and mighty. Jesus Christ, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? Jesus Christ, almighty. He is the King of glory. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.